everyone. You're all very welcome to tonight's event. My name is Beth Hannan. I'm the Associate Director of the Forum for European Philosophy. If you don't know us, the Forum has been putting on philosophy and philosophy-related events for the last 20 years, mostly based in the LSE. They're almost all free to attend, and that's thanks to the extreme generosity of our donors and the support we get from the LSE. Just a couple of housekeeping matters. Uh, if you could turn off the volume on your phone, that would be fantastic. Feel free to keep your phone on if you want to live tweet. We have our own hashtag and everything. Uh, and uh, this is being recorded for a podcast, so if you want to ask a question, please wait for the microphone to reach you so that your voice can be picked up on the recording. Um, so I'll hand you over to Danielle, who will be the chair for tonight's event. Thanks, Beth. Um, so, again, I'd like to add my welcome. Um, and unfortunately, I have an apology from Howard Cagill, who is no longer able to make this evening's event. Um, he's had to withdraw for personal reasons. Um, so, sorry about that. Um, but fortunately, we do have two fantastic speakers with us nonetheless. Um, and the format for this evening's event is that each of our speakers will address the question, is political violence ever justified? So they will each speak for about 15 minutes. And then hopefully this will open into a discussion between them, and then we will open, um, open the, to questions from the floor. Um, so speaking first is uh, Kimberly Hutchins. So Kimberly is Professor of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary University of London, and her work bridges the disciplines of political theory and philosophy. Okay, I'll stand up uh, here uh, so that I can get my uh, points across. Uh, what I'm going to say addresses the uh, main question, but also sub-questions that were articulated in the um, uh, blurb for the, for the forum, so the discussion may, may broaden out a little from the, uh, from the main question. Um, I think perhaps it's always more interesting if there is some sort of fairly clear position stated at the outset, although... <laughs> As I think you'll see from your remarks, I see this whole, the answer to this question is anything but clear, really, at the end of the day. Um, when one first looks at a question like, is political violence ever justified? It's not too difficult to imagine scenarios and contexts in which one could come up with pretty good arguments as to why it might be. Um, but it seems to me that very often those kinds of arguments rely on a very major degree of abstraction from what political violence is as an institution and as a practice. So to kind of situate myself, I would say that if you're talking about isolated acts of political violence, possibly you can come up with reasons why they may be justified. If you're thinking about political violence as an institutionalized practice, then it becomes much harder to see how it can be justified. So maybe we can, in the discussion, think a bit more about that um, distinction. There's obviously a big question about definitions here, what's actually meant by political violence. I've been working for some time now with a colleague, Elizabeth Fraser at Oxford, looking at the ways that um, the concept of politics and the concept of violence have been understood in relation to each other within the history of political thought. And there's a great deal of ambiguity and contestation around that. So that 
And also, obviously, at the level of common sense, there's also a lot of contestation. So that for some people, political violence, for instance, would be specifically used mostly in relation to, say, acts of revolutionary violence rather than, for instance, war. Whereas for other people, the concept of political violence would encompass war. For some people, the concept of political violence would extend to something like domestic violence in certain kinds of feminist uh, arguments in which domestic violence is one of the manifestations of uh, gender structures of power and there is a politics to it uh, as part of the ongoing oppression of women. For some people, political violence might include all kinds of practices that states engage in from imprisonment through to a variety of interrogation techniques that don't necessarily involve any physical contact, and so on and so forth. So we have a real problem, I think, about precisely what we're talking about when we're discussing this concept of political violence to begin with. And I'm going to come back to that in, in my closing um, comments. In the broader sort of um, question surrounding the topic of this uh, forum... One question that was asked was, does political violence ever achieve long-term goals or does it simply perpetuate violence? Um, again, lots of problems there. How do you work out what counts as long-term within this um, context? Uh, I remember very well as... Um, a younger scholar reading a piece by Richard Norman in which he talked through how if you thought about all of the consequences of the Second World War, which is often held to be, you know, one example of the justified use of violence, actually you could on utilitarian grounds decide that it wasn't just after all and even that example of political violence didn't pass the test once you'd gone long enough term in the way that you assessed it. Um, but what seems to me to be important about this question of whether political violence ever achieves its goals or simply perpetuates violence is precisely that it does draw our attention to violence as a practice and as an institution. If you look at the thought of people like Simone de Beauvoir or Maurice Merleau-Ponty um, thinking about violence in the context of resistance against Nazism or in the context of revolutionary violence in their work, some of you will have read Humanism and Terror or The Ethics of Ambiguity, they puzzle in particular over the paradox of how it is that the means of violence in and of themselves may defeat the ends for which the violence is being practiced. And I'm not sure that there's any way out of that paradox. If you are using violence as a means to an end, you have to cultivate in yourself certain kinds of skills, characteristics, techniques. You have to get certain kinds of infrastructures in place to support your practices of violence. And in and of themselves, those practices may end up threatening the end for which you were fighting in the first place. So I think that's a deep and a very deep problem for arguments for the use of political violence somehow being able to be justified in purely instrumental terms. It's not something that you can just pick up and put down like a tool, although people often speak about it that way, including, for instance, in relation to things like the um, bombing of Syria that will be uh, debated in Parliament in the UK tomorrow. It's presented as something that you will do that will lead to some kind of outcome. The actual means and the ways in which they then characterise institutions and ways of doing politics don't get the attention that they really need and deserve. 
So I suppose I would want to say at a, at a broader level, and this relates very much in my case to an interest in feminist ethics um, and feminist pacifism, that I don't think there is any political violence that does not in some sense corrupt its users. At the same time, I don't think there's any non-violence that does either. So I don't think there's some easy sort of option here that you can somehow end up with clean hands when you are engaged in political fighting, political struggle. Uh, whether you use violence or you don't, there are going to be remainders in terms of the actions that you take. A second question that was asked in the preamble to this session was whether there are some types of violence that are more rational or ethically justifiable than others. And that could be seen as getting at a variety of different things. I mean, one of the things is the language of surgical strikes, of limited warfare, of um, the use of things like um, drones, which has become very common in some of the asymmetrical conflicts that have characterized the last sort of 10 years or so. It could refer, obviously, to very well-known arguments in applied philosophy around whether torture is ever, ever permissible, or recently about, for instance, the ethics of assassination. I mean, I think it's quite interesting to dwell on the question of whether the most justifiable form of political violence might be assassination as opposed to war or other sorts of collective practices of violence, which inevitably take various waifs and strays um, along the way. There's quite some interesting stuff on this. Um, Christopher Heath-Wellman and others has written on it. But again, I think it can become rather too easy to come up with an argument for why selective assassination is the way in which to conduct your political violence, you know, get the baddies, as it were, in advance. Uh, for a start, of course, you're doing without um, due, due process. But also, if you think about what happens in terms of assassinations in different contexts, they often spark off major communal riots, major problems. So the idea, again, that you can have this nice, clean strike that will somehow sort things out without any kind of repercussions is highly problematic. There's been a recent big move in the ethics of war, led by uh, philosophers such as Jeff McMahon, U.A. Steinhoff, who have argued that the types of violence that are essentially rational, ethical, and justifiable are the types of violence directed at those people who have effectively forfeited their rights to self-defense. Uh, there's a whole literature surrounding this which essentially models justifiable political violence on the situation of the innocent person who is defending themselves or, say, the policeman who is defending the innocent person against an aggressive attacker. In those circumstances, it's assumed the aggressive attacker has forfeited their rights and therefore it's okay to attack them, to kill them or to hurt them. Again, I have quite major problems with that way of thinking. I think it individualizes ideas about violence and war which are actually collective. They involve practices, they involve police system. Um, uh, they involve belief systems, um, ideological understandings, and so on. And I think in some ways it fundamentally mistakes the nature of political violence to think about it in that way. But it's certainly one of the major ways that people have recently pre presented arguments for how political violence might be understood as justifiable. 
Another of the questions that was raised in relation to this forum is, is there a clear line between resistance and political violence? It's a real shame that Howard Cagle isn't here. I mean, I don't know how many people have read his book on resistance, which is a great read. I very much recommend it. But in that book, Gandhi and Mao are both key exemplars of resistance. In other words, Howard argues very, very strongly that resistance may be either violent or non-violent. So in other words, you can't draw a line and put resistance on one side um, and political violence uh, on the other. And I would agree with that. I, I think that's, I think that's a, a legitimate um, argument to make. Um, if one thinks of resistance as a kind of attempt to halt, stop, defer, deter, then it may take many different sort of forms. And a war of position is one, um, and a nonviolent um, action of Gandhi's kind might be uh, another. I've been very interested recently, uh, along with Elizabeth Fraser, in looking at the work of Gandhi and Fanon in relation to each other, looking at them comparatively. And there are two different sorts of lines that one finds being drawn in their work and their thinking, and obviously they were activists as well as thinkers. There's the question of how you draw a line between violence and nonviolence, and this is the reason why I think nonviolence can never be a pure position either. Gandhi was constantly worried by the difficulty of how you actually could be sure as to what was genuine non-violence. And he constantly revisited the actions that people had taken in his movement um, and in analysing them decided that actually violence had been present and that was one of the reasons why maybe they hadn't worked in the way that he'd wanted them to. But you see this constant negotiation between what counts as violence and what counts as non-violence in Gandhi's work and what comes out very strongly is the real difficulty of drawing that line. The other line that I think is really interesting and which you find at work in Fanon but also obviously elsewhere and all over the place is the line between good and bad violence. In Fanon's case, he wants to make a very clear distinction between colonial violence and anti-colonial violence. And there's a great deal of discussion in Wretched of the Earth as to how you can make that distinction. But in the final chapter, when he talks about the mental health issues that emerge for both the torturers and the tortured, for the people fighting for the FLN and for the people uh, fighting on, the, on behalf of, of, of the French imperial regime. What you see is the same kind of damage is done, whether it was anti-colonial violence or colonial violence that was being inflicted, or at least that a very great deal of very similar damage was done across the board psychically to the people who were involved. Uh, if anybody hasn't read that chapter, the last one of Wretched of the Earth, I really recommend it because it is so interesting to see the anatomization of you know, the, the French bloke who's engaged in torturing, who can't get to sleep, who's hitting his wife and children because he hears the screams all the time. And he comes to Fanon for treatment in order that he can be cured and go back to torturing again. Uh, so, you know, Damage is done to perpetrators and to victims, to those victims that become perpetrators. And that has to be part of the balance sheet we draw when we try to think about whether political violence is ever justified. The last question that was asked in relation to the form, which is in some ways more, I think, of a social scientific question perhaps than a philosophical one, although it relates back to the problem of how you define or conceptualise 
political violence? Is the question of whether we need new ways of understanding or classifying political violence in the early 21st century? Um, I mean, clearly the LSE worker, people like Mary Caldor, has been really influential in arguing that the nature of war shifted in the post-Cold War period. And it's certainly the case that we see a predominance of civil war, of asymmetrical war, of insurgency, counterinsurgency, of terrorist violence. All of those things have marked the conflicts of the last 20 years um, as opposed to major interstate uh, engagements, although obviously there has been some interstate engagement as well. Do we need new categories to grasp all of that? I'm not sure that we do, although I think that there are certainly interesting and perhaps somewhat novel ethical questions that arise because of the characteristics of political violence in the contemporary uh, era. So that, for instance, 30 years ago, the ethics of selective assassination as a tactic in warfare would not really have been given much of a consideration with the invention of drones, with the supposed capacity to identify particular targets, and with it appears the acceptance increasingly that uh, you can um, execute people before you have tried them, etc. This has become a much more live question within ethical and moral debate. So there is a sense, I think, in which the particular patterns of political violence give us different kinds of ethical questions and problems to focus on. But I'm not sure that we actually are unable to conceptualise those questions and problems. It seems to me a lot of the concerns we have and a lot of the things we're trying to think about, we can see a lot of continuity with, say, what Merleau-Ponty and Beauvoir were trying to think about in the 1940s and 50s. So I don't think we really do need new ways of categorising violence. And I will stop there. Thanks very much. You've given us lots and lots of things to think about there. Um, I'd like to introduce our second speaker, uh, Professor Maeve Cook. Uh, Maeve is Professor of Philosophy at University College Dublin, and she's published widely across political and social philosophy, as well as European philosophy. Thank you very much, Daniel. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here. Uh, we don't need much reminding, I think, that the question of political violence isn't an abstract intellectual question, but a very immediate one. Uh, we don't need much reminding either that it's a very complex question. Uh, by way of, of, of uh, introduction to what I, I have to say, um, I wanted to start by saying that uh, the question of political violence uh, for me, who grew up in Ireland in the second half of the 20th century, uh, within living memory of the founding of the Irish state, that question was never an idle question. In parts of my family, uh, indeed, when I was growing up, the, um, the saying, burn everything English except their coal, uh, was partly a joke, but it was a joke uh, with a certain undertone of uh, seriousness. Uh, my maternal grandfather, uh, who uh, died in the late 1970s, he uh, joined the Irish Republican Brigade in 1916, uh, when more or less immediately after he left school, 
and uh, the Irish Republican Brigade was a secret revolutionary organization <coughs> dedicated uh, to the armed struggle um, uh, with a view to establishing uh, um, an independent democratic republic and it's probably best known for its part in the staging of the Easter Rising in 1916 but also for the proclamation of the Irish Republic and the, in fact I, I found it very, very um, more than inter interesting, if interesting can be taken to, uh, uh, it, it had an impact on me rereading the proclamation um, uh, recently. The proclamation makes no secret um, of, its, the proceed, it, of the way in which it sees a link between the armed struggle and um, uh, independence, uh, commitment to democracy, commitment to republican ideals of civil and religious liberty, equal rights and opportunities for everybody, uh, universal suffrage in 1916, I mean, certainly uh, ahead of, uh, of England and many European uh, states in that regard, also to a commitment to, to a cherishing uh, each uh, child in the New Republic equally. So, but the, the point is the link between that and the armed struggle. In fact, I can read you a few lines uh, from uh, paragraph three of this 1916 proclamation of the Irish Republic. So here we go. In every generation, the Irish people have asserted their right to national freedom and sovereignty. Six times during the last 300 years, they have asserted it to arms. Standing on that fundamental right, and again asserting it in arms in the face of the world, we hereby proclaim the Irish Republic as a sovereign independent state, and we pledge our lives and the lives of our comrades in arms to the cause of its freedom, of its welfare, and its exaltation among the nations. So my grandfather uh, was very proud of, uh, um, of having been and being a Republican until he died. He wasn't apparently proud of his role in the armed struggle. In fact, he rarely, if ever, spoke about violence or he was an intelligence officer and he liked to say that. He didn't really speak about it. My memory of him indeed is that he um, was proudest of, um, uh, he was a civil engineer with Dublin Corporation. He was proudest, um, his proudest achievement, because he certainly he talked about it a lot, was a city park that he had planned as a city <coughs> engineer on the north side of the city. And the point about this park was that it was built on a rubbish dump. So there's an obvious metaphor here and analogy. So something beautiful uh, is, 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 is uh, built on top of something horrible. And uh, the obvious question is, uh, could uh, the violence exercised by organizations such as the Irish Republican Brigade, uh, could it be uh, buried forever um, uh, 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 below... Uh, uh, layers of civic in engagement and commitment to republic ideals. Now, that is the question. Uh, and I don't think my grandfather saw any clear answer to it. I can't say that I see a particularly clear answer, but over the, over the last 10 years or so, my answer has become a bit clearer, and this is what I'm going to um, present to you now briefly. So, uh, to address this question, can political violence... Uh, be justified. I think, first of all, we need a working definition of violence. So I'm throwing out a very general one. Uh, violence, as I'm going to be thinking about it, um, is the imposition 
of will by one person or group of persons on another person or group of persons. So imposition of will by one person or group of persons upon another person or group of persons backed up by physical force. So I'm using the simplest version. Violence is physical force uh, uh, or involves physical force. Back, uh, imposition of will backed up by physical force whether it be actually exercised or merely threatened. <coughs> so violence, the threat of physical force is also um, violence. Just as importantly, I think we need to think about the point of politics. So um, I'm a philosopher, I'm also, uh, I'm, I think, I'm, I, I, I sometimes describe myself as a political philosopher, and I think about this a lot. So what is the point of politics? Why should I, or can be we, but why should I, as a vulnerable, uh, embodied, but also reflective person, why should I want to live with other people in an association <coughs> that is regulated by laws that have a coercive aspect, regulated by laws? I would, why should I want to do that? And be, that it, an association that is also governed <coughs> by a variety of, of uh, powerful, um, sometimes coercive, administrative institutions. Why should I want that? Now, uh, as you can, as many of you know, and if not, you can well imagine, uh, in the course of the last several thousand years, there have been a number of answers to that question. Why should we live in political association with others? Uh, I, think that I, I think there's broadly two kinds of answers. Uh, they're not distinct, but I think they're distinct enough to, not completely distinct, but they're different enough to, to separate them into two groups. One kind of answer, why should we live in political association, <coughs> emphasizes security, um, protection of, of, of individual interests or group interests such as they are. So if you like, I think Hobbes is the, uh, um, is the emblematic figure here. Hobbes thinks the point of politics is security and commodious living. So happiness, well-being, but in the sense of, you know, protect my interests, uh, give me a certain uh, amount of security and peace. The second group of answers uh, is, is, is thinks of well-being in a more developmental sense. So rather than security and commodious living, it emphasizes something like human flourishing. So Aristotle is my emblematic figure here. Uh, 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 and the point of politics for in this tradition is something like yeah, well, well-being is a certain sense of human flourishing, happiness, but in a sense, something we aspire to develop over the course of our of our life. Now, I my answer is more Aristotelian than Hobbesian, and I give a very specific um, answer uh, to the question of the kind of human flourishing that is the point of political association. So, my specific answer is freedom. So I think the point of political association is individual freedom. So that's why we should want to live with other people in associations that are regulated by laws and governed by administrative institutions. But, so it's a modern answer, if you like. I'm emphasizing freedom, individual freedom. But what is really important, and you have to bear with me, I am getting to, to violence, uh, the, what's really important is that freedom, as I understand it, is a form of human flourishing that we can only 
uh, uh, develop or aspire to acquire in relationships with other people. So it's a relational concept. I, don't, I do not think of freedom in, 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 in relentlessly individualistic uh, terms. I don't think of freedom as leaving everyone to do whatever they want to do. Um, well, I do think yeah, we should leave people to do what they want to do, but I think we, should, we individually have to interrogate what we want to do. I think even anecdotally we all know that what we want or want sometimes are destructive of our own flourishing. So we need to be reflective about our wants. And we need to get the judgments of others as regards our wants. So I'm not saying freedom isn't a matter of doing whatever we want to do, but I think it involves uh, reflective engagement with the question of what we want to do and who we want to be. And that is really important. So uh, I have to say maybe a word or two more about this idea of freedom and um, why it involves relationships with other people. Because what I'm going to say is that violence is uh, destructive of the kind of relationships with other people that we need for individual freedom. And that's why it cannot be justified. So that's where I'm going. Uh, so uh, freedom as a kind of human flourishing that we only uh, develop in relationship uh, with others. Uh, I have a, you know, a complicated, well, it's a simple story, but I develop it in, 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 at some length in various places. But it's actually quite simple. The core idea is freedom involves a kind of self-direction. I want to live my life uh, the way uh, I want to live my life. But I want it to be a, a form of self-direction that is that reflects who I really want to be. So it involves asking myself the question, do I really want to be who I want to be? Uh, this is a kind of critical engagement. And my, the, 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 the second, uh, the, 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 or at least the key uh, move I make, is that that question can only be answered uh, through um, engagement with the views and uh, uh, opinions and attitudes of other people. So I myself am not, uh, I, I obviously have a lot to say about who I want to be, but the, the, the rightness of my decisions, the rightness, uh, my decisions as to which path in life I take, uh, the kind of person I, 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 I become, uh, these, are, these are questions that are in which everybody has a stake, and in which it's important for me that I, I learn from other people's perspectives. <coughs> so, freedom for me has, this, has a subjective uh, 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 element. It's, I work out for myself the kind of person I want to be, but it has this trans-subjective, or perhaps more precisely, intersubjective uh, dimension in that I, I engage with the, uh, I open up my, uh, my, my, my uh, views, my, my, my concerns about the right way to live uh, to the critical evaluations of, of others. Okay, so I've given you my answer. Uh, let me see what else I have to say to make, maybe it's already clear why violence is destructive of that kind of relationship with others. If freedom involves, freedom involves, put someone slightly differently, freedom on my account, on my conception, involves always involves a reflective engagement with my concerns about the good, but it involves me giving an account of myself to others. 
So it involves me justifying myself, not just to myself, but to other people too. And the very opposite of that is, a, is an imposition of will uh, backed up by force. So I think this connects up. It's not exactly the same point, but it connects up to something that Kimberly uh, was saying about the way in which violence is destructive of personality. So I am saying, I'm saying it destroys, it undermines the kind of person I want to be as a free person, a self-directing person, but also un it also undermines and destroys the relationships to others that I need in order to develop as a free person. So that's my answer in a nutshell. I think it's um, very simple. Uh, I have, uh, Daniel, should I stop? I have about three things I could say. But I okay, well, I, I thought of um, three, maybe at least three, but I could stop at three. Three, three um, maybe notes. I was going to say qualifications, but I'm not retracting from what I want to say. Uh, one, one important thing is, is that I, I, I try to talk about or I try to show why political violence cannot be justified if one thinks about what the political is for, and I interpret that in terms of freedom. I say freedom involves relationships with others. Violence is destructive of the very fabric of human association that I need in order to develop as a free person. But I think my argument only really holds for intra, uh, or, uh, to, for, for political violence within a state. I'm not sure at all uh, about just wars or about violence between states. So I'm offering an argument that is very specific to the question of why should I live in a particular kind of political association. I think the question of relationships between states, the just, just war, raises other kinds of questions which I just haven't thought enough about. That's the first, um, that's a qualification. Uh, the second thing is, and that's why I, 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 it's, it really is a shame that Howard uh, Cagle isn't here. Um, I am a strong advocate of civil disobedience, so I think resistance um, is very important. Uh, uh, that's something I wanted to say. I, I think I can maybe, maybe show how that fits a little bit with, with my position. If I am saying the point of political association is to enable and enhance the individual of, uh, sorry, the liberty, the freedom of individual citizens, then one could ask, well, what happens if the state doesn't fulfill its promise to enable and uh, enhance the liberty of its citizens? And what happens if it's actually, um, you know, it itself violently um, undermines any possibility uh, for individuals to uh, develop as free persons. So Hobbes would say, well, then we're back in the state of nature and violence is permitted. But I think I can't say that because I'm arguing from a position, from the, from the uh, value of freedom, and I think violence is destructive of, of, of of the self and of relationships with others that we need uh, for freedom. So I think uh, even when the state is violent, I don't think, um, I, I don't think violence is justifiable. Uh, but I do think resistance and civil disobedience is justifiable. It's an interesting question whether how one draws, draws the line, whether one can draw the line. I'm certainly, there's a lot of room for discussion there. The uh, third thing and final thing I want to say is that uh, it does seem to me that if a state is 
is if the violence uh, exercised by a state towards the citizens is of, of, a, of an extent and degree uh, that it threatens uh, human existence, I think violence may, may be necessary as opposed to justifiable. And that may seem like splitting hairs. So I think I would say sometimes violence seems necessary. What's the difference between saying it's not justifiable, but it, it at least looks to us as if it's necessary? What's the difference? The reason I think it's not speaking hairs is because I think it makes a, a, a huge difference how we then deal with, with, um, with, with violence. If we do it for reasons of necessity, rather than because we think it is morally justified, then I think the appropriate reactions are ways of, 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 of addressing our violent, um, our exercise of violence, uh, our armed struggle. The, the vocabulary is, the vocabularies are ones of regret, forgiveness, atonement, uh, uh, words that have been taken over or have become part of religious vocabularies, particularly uh, uh, um, Christian religious vocabularies, but not exclusively in the last you know, 2,000 years or so. I uh, don't think that's an argument against them. I think Christian vocabularies grew out of non-Christian worlds, and I think they can be secularized. They don't have to be secularized. But I think it makes a difference whether we, um, we, we look at our own acts of violence um, from the point of view of, of uh, the need to atone, to look for forgiveness, uh, to uh, be regretful. Thank you. Thank you very much to you both. Um, I just want to ask a couple of questions to get the discussion going and then we will thanks, um, open it up to questions from the floor. So I, one of the things I was struck by was um, your framing of the question um, it was explicitly historical in a very personal sense. Mm -hmm. um, and when you were talking about um, the role of, of thinking through history in terms of this, this question, um, it was in a very different sense, Kim. Um, and I guess I just want to ask the pair of you, what, what role does the considerations of history have in our response to this question? Because very much in the, the situation we're in at the moment, all the time I'm hearing this question of learning, this issue of learning from history. What does it mean to learn from history, I suppose? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I mean, just uh, one short answer to that is that uh, people talk about learning from history, yeah. but very rarely do, I think. Um, it does seem to me that whether it's acknowledged or not, uh, within some of the literatures around justifying violence, there are certain kind of canonic things that get... So for some people, it's things like anti-colonial struggle that is the archetype of justified uses of political violence. For others, it is something like the Second World War. It's, it's having a go at the Nazis. So there's a sense in which our moral orientation, I think, right. relates. But that's as much about stories, myths, narratives, perhaps, as, as history in itself. I mean, I, I do think that... The, the kind of tools we have for thinking about violence are very much forged through what the relevant struggles have been for us. So from the point of view of, the, of, 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 of Britain as well, I think, for instance, the, the, um, you know, what happened in Northern Ireland has been very important for the ways in which people have talked about terrorism as well as political. So it, 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 it's the examples that you use them partly structures the way that you think. 
but I'm not sure that it's... Um, I'm not sure what philosophical work it does yeah. or often whether it really moves the debate on. It may simply entrench people in beliefs about what they know is either right or wrong to begin with. I, I, I did start with a... Uh, with with an attempt to situate the question within my personal biography. The reason for that was less, and it was historical, obviously, but my point was more that it's, it was, this question is, is living history for me. I mean, I, didn't, I could have gone on to mention uh, the Northern Ireland, which was part of my growing up. It's still, I, I, maybe, I don't know if you can, I hope we can learn from history, but certainly for somebody of my generation in Ireland, it's too early to know what we have learned from a recent Irish history. I, I really raised, the, I brought the example of my grandfather uh, more with, to, with a view to saying how complex the question is. And I still don't have, I'm very perturbed uh, by what looks like the success of the armed struggle in Northern Ireland and the success of the armed struggle in the foundation of the Irish state. The question, I mean, the, it's really, it's, it perturbs me because it's such, a, it's such a complex question. I mean, I've been trying to work this out, and I don't have any easy answers. My sense is that violence leaves its traces uh, on human relationships and on the personality uh, of, the, of the perpetrator. Just to pick up yeah, on yeah. that, um, I was also struck by the way both of you talked about uh, the relationship between the individual and the collective. And you in particular, Maeve, were very keen to... Um, avoid any idea of the individual self being um, preceding the kind of relational self. Um, do you both think that's an important factor when we're trying to think through this question? Well, I mean, I'm very concerned f for other reasons to uh, emphasise the ways in which our identities are formed and developed uh, in webs of relationships with others and I'm particularly concerned in quite recently to emphasize the importance of that thought in a political context because I mean I think it's easy to say well we to think of how relationships with others are important for identity you know most of us grew up in some sort of family but politics isn't a family so it's a real question why do we you know want to live with strangers or should we not want to is the state always some kind of alien presence and i think that's a very strong trend in uh, in Western modernity to think ultimately of the state as an alien uh, presence and I think has got stronger rather than weaker and possibly for, for good reason. The state is usually <laughs> a hostile presence but I think it needn't be. So I'm very concerned for those kind of, for broader political theoretical reasons. With, as regards the question of violence, I don't think you can. If it, once, once, once you, once you think of identity in associational terms, then I think you, then you think of any. I mean, violence. It, it can never be any act of violence. Must uh, uh, if you if you think of the self as always developing an association and relationships with others. Violence doesn't just hurt me or others. It hurts the relationships between others. So I think that's just the kind of perspective you have to take. <coughs> I mean, just to add to that, I take that point um, 
entirely, although I think... But I think there's another step here as well, which is... We, we tend to speak about violence as if it is an act. You know, it comes out and there's an act of violence and it's there. But acts of violence always come out of you know, practices, institutions, contexts. Violence bonds, you know. I mean, people in armies and battalions and, you know, people who shared a war, they share, you know, you build relationships through violence as well as destroying them. That's true. But for me, in many ways, it is those institutions and practices that are really the ethically and politically troubling things I, I don't on the whole you know I can see how a specific act may clearly seem to be justifiable or necessary in, in a particular context but it's the way that war as an institution is embedded in the global political economy in the way that states work in understanding of national identity and deeply 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 in understandings and practices of gender you know, it, it, it absolutely um, permeates the world that we live in in lots of ways and I think we have to be very careful not to treat it as if it's some separate thing rather than actually being very thoroughly part of who we are and what we do. And just leading on for that, um, a, a more methodological question. I know you both work at the intersection between political theory and philosophy. How, how would you describe your, kind of, your approach in terms of the way those two disciplines fit together when you're looking at questions like this? <laughs> I mean, well, I, I mean, hmm. there's so many different things I could sort of say to that. Yeah. I mean, there's clearly a sense of, you know, the way that I think about the social and political realm is profoundly affected by. Um, insights that I derive from um, a tradition of thought that I'd say goes back to Hegel if, if not further so there's that sort of there um, for me as well feminism is a very interesting confluence both in philosophical and political terms and I am quite sure that uh, an experience as a young woman at uh, Greenham Common and their peace camp the women's peace camp at that time the anti-nuclear peace camp uh, was one of the things that brought together nascent thinking about ethics and feminism and political projects and so on. So I, th I think it's quite hard for me to yep. pull these things apart. I think they actually work together yep. throughout my philosophical work as well as other aspects of what I do. Well, it's a, it's a difficult question because I don't normally think of of the... I don't think in sharp disciplinary ter terms. I, I think a lot of people are philosophers. I think it's a kind of a temperamental thing. It's kind of a, 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 way, of, a way of approaching life. And uh, most of us also live in, almost all of us live in political associations. So, you know, I see that if you live in a political association and you're, you approach life philosophically, then there's no division. But that's too simple. I mean, you're talking about the institutions as well. And certainly what Kimberly said made me think as well, of course I have learned a lot from, from the history of uh, political thought. And for, I, I wouldn't want to say you know, history of philosophy more than the history of political thought. It all belongs together. Um, Precisely because great, but also from literature. So precisely because you know, great works uh, make you think about things in a philosophical way. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really see any, any, any methodological difference. Thanks. Um, okay, shall we take some questions? Gentlemen here in the second row. 
Thank you. Uh, Professor Cook on Passant meant, uh, mentioned the concept of the just war tests, but then moved on. I mean, I wondered whether the framework of questions which you address when you're considering whether there is a just war is also the framework that you could use for considering the question of political violence within a state or within a society, because the questions seem quite apposite um, to the the issue, and um, it may well lead you to a conclusion that the answer to that question in a democratic society is almost always going to be no, Mm -hmm. because the test of is political, is it a last resort, which is a, one of the tests for a just war, is, not, is never going to be reached because there is always in a democratic society an alternative way of reaching your goal, which is to pursue things through the normal political uh, process. But am I missing something? <laughs> Well, not at all, no. I mean, I, I think, uh, I, thank you. Uh, the, the only reason I made that qualification at the end is, is that I myself haven't thought sufficiently uh, about the, the, the way that the two levels, if you like, connect. And I, well, listening to you, I think it, it, I'm, I'm sympathetic to what you say, and I, and, I, and I would like to think that I would, I would end up saying something like that. I just ha- haven't thought it through. Yeah, I mean, I, I, people do, in fact. I mean, that's absolutely right. So people use the, um, uh, the just war framework to think about resistance and revolutionary violence as well. So I think that is certainly something that you can do. And I think it is true also that within a democratic state, it becomes very hard to meet. But I mean, last resort criteria are notoriously tricky when you're talking about an interstate context. Um, but there's also other traditions for thinking about revolution-resistant violence which link the practice of the violence to the ends that are being served. So if you go back to Sorel or Fanon, there there is also that mode of justification, which I think is very different from a just war framework, which is partly about the, the practice of the violence itself being what's needed to build the new society. So, you know, Fanon talks famously about the cleansing force of violence, Sorrell talks about... And, you know, there's a tradition for thinking about violence in expressive terms and so on that's part of that. So I think that gives us perhaps a somewhat different ethical vocabulary that might be linked more to an aesthetic way of thinking, but which does turn up in in ways that people try to justify or think about why revolutionary violence might be the right thing. Gentlemen at the front. I was thinking about Maeve's grand, grandfather and the, the feeling that he had that somehow in the anti-colonial violence against the British that he was using, um, even if he couldn't talk about it later, there was an awareness or a recognition that political violence in that situation in terms of 1916 was in somehow justified mm-hmm. as part of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in the tension between that and then the more individual framing in terms of freedom, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even though that freedom is framed in terms of mm-hmm. relationality mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. So it's like, at one level, the grandfather's left behind um, and the park is remembered and the hope is expressed that somehow the park is going to show or say that somehow the political violence could somehow be disappeared. 
So that's one question. The second one links to um, what Kimberly was saying, which I was really taken with, which is the notion, and, and it's this evening that's really important to raise this, the notion that violence can somehow just be taken up almost and then put down. And the way in which the bombing of <coughs> Syria tomorrow, if it happens, is being framed in that kind of way, that it is violence that we can somehow provide some kind of justification for, even though we don't know what the outcomes will be, and even though we're thinking about this knowing what happened in Iraq. So I was somewhat... I was taken with your account, but wanted it to go a bit deeper, wanted it to stay a little longer around the, Iraq, around the Syria situation, and just to think about what philosophy's role is in helping us think tonight about what might well be happening tomorrow, in that there is a Thanks, Tom, justification. So that's questions. the question, sure, that's great. Enough, okay, enough. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, I thank you very much because you, you put your finger on the, on the tension that is, <laughs> perturbs me uh, in my own uh, attempt to, to, to uh, address this question. The tension is between, well, I, I'm, I'm part of me still thinks, well, maybe it is true. Maybe violence can be justified because maybe it can be. Just, or maybe, it's not a question of, I don't think it can be justified, but maybe it can be buried, and we can just you know, start off. But, no, the reason, I can, the reason, sometimes I think like that, and certainly I have in the past, but the reason I don't think like that now is because, I mean, as I, you know, my truncated story, of course, left out everything that happened between 1916 and the founding of the Irish state, and there was a very, very horrible uh, civil war. Uh, there was at least... Uh, uh, 10, if not 15 years more of, 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 of terrible, of dreadful violence. Uh, you know, and, and in fact, within my grandfather's extended family, there were people on one side and people on the other, and that was true of many, many families. But nonetheless, one could say, well, at some point, you know, people put it behind them and they moved on. And that's, that's true, I think. But that doesn't make it justifiable. It makes it, you know, it, 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 it puts it in a different light. It means that I think, and I think, you know, not just my grandfather and the immediate family, but the, the Irish citizens of, Irish, of Ireland right up to this day, I think uh, we have to, in some way, address the question of, um, of, the, of our complicity in, 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 in violence and, you know, and, and, and deal with it in some way. So I just think it puts a different light on it. Yeah, I mean... Thanks very much for the question. I suppose I would say that I think philosophy can operate at different levels here in the sense that, but, but maybe also one, in some ways one might get just as far with a more historical or realist kind of argument at this point if you're trying to affect a debate that's going on tomorrow. I mean, in terms of philosophy's levels, I mean, for me, philosophy helps me to think through the problem of that way of thinking about violence, that it's something you can pick up and put down. But the problem, that in itself isn't going to help us with what we should do about the debate tomorrow. Um, the other thing philosophy can do, and this goes back to the just war question, I think, is to clarify very clearly what are the 
stakes if you're trying to think within those those terms. And I think you can make a very strong just war argument against um, going ahead with that bombing. Although, again, we have to put it in the context in which this bombing is going on anyway. And in practical terms, it's not totally clear exactly what difference it'll make that, that, that Britain is joining, um, uh, joining in. Um, I mean, my own feeling is that, in a sense, it just, it just cries out in terms of common sense. I mean, the Taliban were supposed to be crushed by the invasion of Afghanistan, a very similar kind of organisation to ISIS-ISIL. In the end, they have to be talked to. In the end, they're actually flourishing 14 years later. Why on earth people think that this is the way you're going to somehow deal with that? Just beggars belief for me. And I don't think that, at the end of the day, has anything to do with philosophy. It just seems to be a kind of glaring piece of, of common sense in some way. So to the extent, I guess, that philosophy helps you think about argument clearly, then it may be useful in that respect as well. Gentlemen, towards the back. If you could wait for the microphone. Thanks. Uh, Professor Cook, you talked about being an advocate of um, resistance, um, but not of political violence, but especially in sort of governments that are oppressive of civil liberties. Um, how can you sort of differentiate between the two? Well, it's a very difficult question, so I don't have any easy answer to it. Uh, so, the, you know, you're, you're, you're right to ask it. Um, I don't want to keep coming back to this. You know, it's not, violence is, is not justified, but maybe there are situations in which there's no other way out. Uh, it makes it a, a last resort, but as Kimberly said, it, what looks like a last resort often isn't the last resort. Um, I, it, it's, it's difficult. There might be situations where I, I don't think it's, it's justified for the kind of reasons I've been trying to uh, lay out. Um, you, um, sorry, there was, there was something else I was going to say there. You, you said, um, in how can you just if you just say, say your question? I know it's very short. Say it again, and I'd remember what I wanted to say in response to it. Oh, no, I, I think I know what I want to say. I think what we have to be uh, wary about. I mean, maybe I'm picking up on something that that uh, Kimberly said too. Um, and about which more needs to be said when she talked about this kind of ex expressive violence as an expressive uh, uh, um, activity. So qu quoting uh, or citing people like Sorel, Georges Sorel or Fanon. And I think we shouldn't underestimate the, the, uh, the pleasure and excitement uh, that, that people feel uh, when they're uh, engaged in violence activity. And that is all the more reason, I think, just to be wary of it but I think a lot can be done I think I think I think civil disobedience can go pretty far gentlemen here are you familiar with the Mahabharata Mahabharata they they have that they deal with the issue and um, um, I guess Arjuna at the end of the day doesn't really have any choice it's got to happen. There isn't a choice. And, and you can intellectualize from now till doomsday, but there isn't a choice. But remember how Gandhi read that text, not as about war, but as about nonviolence. 
Well, yeah. So I mean, I mean there's a lot. There's a lot in the interpretation here. So no, you have to fight, but the yeah. way in which you fight yes. need not be violent. And I mean, I think it's really fascinating. I, I'm fascinated by the way he used this war text yes. as such a crucial um, um, reference point for his own commitment to non-violence. Non but there is something about fighting there that is really important, but it's then about how you fight. Yeah. Um, and I guess it's at least open then to read the Marabata as maybe not necessarily saying that you've got to get the knives out. No, quite, but it does go back to what Nave is talking about, about the, the, the sense of Necessity. self mm. and the mm. develop, to want the, the idea that you can become something, whereas in actual fact, the real, the, the, it seems to me that the direction is not to become something, but to be who it, what you are. It's not, you are some, what are you? That's the question. Whereas the, the child has overlaid on top of him all sorts of identities that are imposed from the outside. That is a violence. And the child, underneath, the, underneath that is the sense of self that the person, they are who they are. Right, and then you got the name and the, all the all the uh, additions to that, like you're a good girl, you're a bad girl, whatever it is, etc., 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 and and that's that ends up as an adult, totally confused. Well, just there's no contradiction there because being who you want to be <laughs> could be the person, in your terms, who you really are. You know, if you think that there is a, a, a and there could be. Uh, you know, re recovering or retrieving the the the, well, it would be already, the already existed. Yeah, I don't I don't rule that out at all, at all, not at all. No, no, no. No. Yeah. It was a question at the back. Yes, the lady at the back, the back row. Thank you. Um, I actually had a question because I'm fairly curious what you actually mean by justified because you haven't touched upon that at all. Um, like justified for whom? Justified for what purpose? Are you justifying after the violence or before the violence? Is it the UN? Is it a state? Who's actually justifying? Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously a lot of things you can say in terms of what's meant by justified. I mean, philosophical terms, it's often around a certain set of principles that are supposed to tell you what's justified and what isn't. Um, when I was using the term, I was thinking in terms of morally justified. So is the use of political violence ever morally um, justified. I am not persuaded on the whole by the notion that some particular authority in and of itself can make violence legitimate. And I'm, I, I think we very often don't think enough about the violence of the state, the everyday violence of the state, because we just assume that's something states do. So we don't question it in the same way. I mean, it's the classic thing. There's a demonstration and the, you know, some, somebody throws an egg and, and some policeman sort of uses a truncheon. And when it's reported as there was violence in the crowd, not that the policemen were violent or even the fact they were sort of sitting there with the shields and truncheons was part of violence. So I, I would be reluctant to think to go down the road of saying, oh, because it's the UN, that must make it okay. I think of uh, justification as a, as a process between persons, so it's not something, uh, well, let me say, it's a process of giving reasons uh, to others, receiving them back. Uh, there's no knockdown reasons. Reasons can always be uh, 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 interrogated. Uh, a request for further reasons. I don't think there's any end point to the process of justification. But the important point is, 
in, in what I've been saying here and what I'm th I think generally is that when I say giving reasons to others, you can also think of it as giving an account of what you did or what you believe to others. And I think it's really very, very difficult to uh, justify violent actions uh, to, to others who are affected uh, by them. I don't, if you can think of, I mean, I, maybe somebody, I mean, this is some, there isn't time for us all to think about it here, but uh, I couldn't think of any instance where I could convincingly say to somebody else, well, I really had to um, act violently towards you for your own good. I and mean, people did say that in the past. I don't know how I could say that in any circumstance now. I could maybe say it about what I did to somebody else, but that would leave me open to all sorts of other uh, um, worries. So violence is a process, an open-ended process, and think of it in terms of, uh, sorry, justice is, justification is a process, an open-ended process, and I think of it in terms of giving an account to myself to others. Gentleman here. Uh, yes, I'm thinking about what Professor Cook said uh, about uh, the worrying trend towards individualism in society. I'm also thinking about um, what Hegel would have said about the worrying trend towards people not being good citizens uh, and, being, and behaving irresponsibly. Um, and uh, I'm also thinking about the most violent conflict that humanity has ever seen, which is the Second World War. And I'm wondering what the speakers could say about how we can try to ensure that, the, uh, that uh, we don't get catapulted back to a situation of the 1930s where there are individual states in Europe pitted against each other and how we can make sure that this European referendum is won, uh, you know, and what we, we as philosophers can, what we as philosophers can do uh, to make sure that we, we stop this, these worrying trends in their tracks. Thank you. Big questions for you then. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I think... Um, I mean, perhaps it's impossible to overestimate the power of philosophy, I don't know. But I, I, I mean, there are things that we can do as citizens, clearly in relation to the specific issue of the EU referendum and so on. Um, I am not quite sure how one sees the link between good citizenship and the absence of war. You could argue that there was a lot of good citizenship around within states at times of very major interstate conflict, not to mention times when states were going out and colonizing the rest of the world. So I think it's quite, I mean, this and this is something that Maeve raised in, in relation to republicanism generally. It's always been a bit of an issue about the inside-outside distinction there. So you could argue a lot of encouragement of good citizenship, if it's within a state model, won't necessarily do away with the threat of interstate war at all. If you're thinking more along the lines of global citizenship or international citizenship, then it's something else, uh, you know, something else is going on. But I, I think it's um, extremely hard from the basis of individual action to do a great deal. It does have to be about movements and collectives and about voting in governments and about you know, large-scale um, kinds of um, political action if you are going to work against possible trends. Although I also think that, you know, if you, if you look at the tendency in warfare, it is not towards major interstate warfare in the past 30, 40 years. It's actually been declining. So that may not be the kind of violence that is likely to be the greatest threat at the current time. 
Well, maybe a, a, well, a word or two, two. There were more than three or four questions there, but I'll a word or two to uh, each of them. Individualism. Yes, I was very uh, critical of, of a certain kind of individualism. I'm also an individualist <laughs> in many ways, but I think I, I want to fight against uh, an individualism that uh, abstracts from and neglects, ignores the ways in which our individual flourishing uh, is, depends on other people, so interconnectedness. Martin Luther King, in his famous speech uh, on the Martian capital, says something like this, our white brothers have come to see that their freedom is inseparably bound up with ours. I think that's a really, really difficult thought, but a really important one. And Marx says something uh, quite like it in the end of the second chapter of, uh, of, um, of the uh, um, a Communist Manifesto. So, you know, individualism but connectedness. Good citizenship, I think we need to think, it's always important to think about what, you know, why be a citizen at all? I think it's really, I don't think we should take it for granted because it's easy just to have this rhetoric of good and bad citizenship. But I think, I think it, it has to mean something. I think it does mean something. So I think we need actually more political, philosophical, uh, renewed political, philosophical uh, attention to these questions, which of course have always been dealt with in the history of political thinking. World War II, how can we avoid it happening again? All I, all I wanted to say there when listening to you was, you know, World War II was, of course, you know, built uh, built on the on, on World War One, <laughs> and World War One itself emerged out of a, of a, of a, a very. Um, I mean, I was struck when you. It was very helpful to be reminded of that. If you read, you know, German Expressionism. I mean, uh, in the early in 1910. I mean, this this cult of of, of violence as a kind of a, um, as as a mode of of uh, artistic aesthetic expression. Uh, it's really quite um, amazing, and I think so. I mean, there's a history here. The World War II didn't didn't come out of nothing. I think I leave the EU for another another time. <laughs> Lady in the third row. Hi, I was wondering if you think there's a problem with the language and the discourse um, around you know political violence as a concept. For me, it makes me think that it's more important than economic or structural and other kinds of violence? And I was just wondering if you could say something about that. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting question because this troubles me a lot as well. Um, I, I'm never sure what people mean when they use the term political violence in that very often it's not only that it excludes other forms of structural violence, but it's also that it's, for instance, you know, state violence isn't always counted as political violence. Bizarrely, you know, people associate political violence with non-state actors doing things rather than state actors, and that for me seems bizarre, you know, in that political violence should encompass all of the things that relate to politics and that use violence, which would include war and what states do on a regular basis internally and externally. My worry, my worry about the sort of move in relation to structural violence, but also somebody mentioned the violence of, of naming earlier on and sort of essentializing. I absolutely understand why the term violence does work with that because it draws attention to the gross ways in which people are hurt and suffer or the ways in which, in a sense, will is imposed, a kind of arbitrariness is going on when you are named or categorized or classified. But my worry about that is that it then becomes... There's a danger of everything becoming violence. I mean, I think there are certain forms of, um, you know, arguments around language, for instance, in which 
it becomes difficult to draw a distinction between people, you know, shooting other people and people calling someone a name. Now, I think both can be violent, but it seems to me we do need to distinguish between the two. So it's, it's a really tricky question. Um, and the whole notion of structural violence in itself, I think, has a lot of other kind of issues there. Just one last thing. One of the things, reasons I think feminist work is interesting and important is because it has demonstrated continua between what we might see as structural violence in terms of gender and, if you like, embodied violence. So you can actually see the kind of links between them there, which I think is, is helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... it's um, I think my, my answer would be very similar to yours in that I, I'm certainly... There's something that... There's something that looks very like, or something you could call structural violence. The question is whether you call it structural violence as opposed to structural oppressive power or something like that. I opted, after some reflection, I opted for a more conservative definition of, of violence as involving physical force. I think for the same kind of reasons, because I, think, I actually think it's important to discriminate between different forms of oppressive in, in, uh, power, subjugating power, dominating power, authoritarianism. I think these things have, have the, 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 the uh, other forms of power, enabling authority, enabling power, um, I think they have different resonances and it's, it's probably... Uh, it, it's probably more productive uh, to to um, to be cautious about using a the, the term violent in a, in a blanket way. Gentleman in the middle. Maybe we could take those two questions together. So the gentleman with this gentleman, and then the gentleman with the glasses. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, thanks. Uh, three three very interesting um, aspects have have been uh, raised tonight. Um, First of all, Kim Kimberley talked about uh, w war being sort of institutionally embedded and permeating the whole of our society. Um, and I think of Vilfredo Pareto, who spoke of our economics as part of a larger system of uh, uh, force and fraud, and I think I'd like to add self-deception self and theft. And... Um, uh, the other point about um, art, art and philosophy, the, the relationship between them and those getting us to think philosophically through these issues. And um, there's, there's William Blake that um, in his Lower Koan, is it? Yes, 1820, uh, which is sort of foreshadowing Marx, he says, where any view of money exists, war cannot be ca uh, art cannot be carried on, but war only. Wow. Um, so, uh, uh, our present situation, perhaps, I, I mean, how can we bring that together? I mean, uh, our ruling order, what if is If you it? could try and frame yes. it as a question, I, I was please. just going to say, how can we get a philosophy of history? I think Hegel said something like, his name's been mentioned various times, you know, um, um, the lesson of history is that we don't learn the lessons of history. And I'm wondering how our ruling order, our Cartesian rationalism, empiricist positivism, with its um, uh, very individualistic, its subjectivist theory of non-cognitive theory of value, uh, its one damn thing after another uh, view of, ideographic view of history, how that can come up with uh, any sort of understanding of seeing patterns, but particularly in a Hegelian sense or in a negative sense, you know, Bacon's okay. three idols, 
four idols, etc., etc. Et we get it in Shakespeare. It's Petrarchian history, <laughs> ironically. Thank you. And the gentleman with the glasses as well. Hi. Um, I was wondering, in your, uh, in your discussion of individual freedom, inter interconnected individual freedom, and uh, discussion of state violence, you haven't mentioned anarchism. Uh, I'm just wondering how that would feed into your discussions. Thank, Thank you. you. In my broader picture, I try to um, explain why, uh, why laws, uh, the laws of the state, uh, can enhance, not just enable, but also enhance individual freedom. So that would mark me off as the not an anarchist. Uh, that's a very difficult position to um, occupy, my, my position, uh, uh, but I'm trying to occupy it at the moment. And, uh, and it has something to do with the idea of authority as a, a non-authoritarian modes of authority. Authority is having a kind of a, an educative uh, uh, function. And I think, um, I think we can learn a lot from the uh, history of philosophy to connect up with the other question um, as regards um, uh, the, uh, the benefits of, of, uh, of, of, const of, of um, constraining uh, education and development. So I'm not an, I'm not an anarchist. Just very briefly on that, I mean, I think it's really interesting, I suppose, that anarchism had these debates and continues to have these debates about diversity of tactics. And if you go back to the 19th century, Bakunin and so on. And so there's a sense in which anarchism is, is a, another microcosm within which this argument about the justification of the use of violence goes on. So that's just really is a, a matter of interest to kind of throw into the uh, discussion. And then I'd just say, I think I'd, I'd agree with the earlier point that it is extremely difficult to theorize the kinds of connections I see if you take a highly individualized um, standpoint for analysis. So I think that's just right. I just have to add there that one of the reasons why I think why I'm not an anarchist, uh, perhaps the, first in, uh, the, the main one, the first instance, is that I, I think uh, politics, political, well, a state, uh, or something like a state and, and, and laws, uh, gives every, I mean, at, at its best, gives everybody uh, the status, equal status of a citizen. And I think... Uh, that's that's an indispensable starting point, and I I mean there are various forms of anarchism. So you know I'm open to I'm open to being persuaded uh, with, with regard to this. But I think uh, you know I want to know that at least legally speaking, I have certain rights as a citizen, and I can start from there when I'm uh, acting in the world. Okay, should we take two questions to finish? Yeah, I think sure. uh, gentleman here and then gentleman in the front row. First of all, I wanted to say congratulations because this remembered me my first lesson in philosophy, and really, it was about how philosophy was born. No? In, the, in the Greek colonies, where there was this free debate, and this is great, really, always asking yourself why, and the relation with others. No? Really, it's great. It's the way of developing. So, my question is, can we answer to this, um, to this violence? as an economical institution, I might say, as a student in, in economics, probably, <laughs> with the public debate, with the free public debate. 
Can be this be the answer? Thank you. Hello. Um, I'm thinking that uh, uh, things are going to go badly in the vote by bombing uh, Syria. And uh, even though our participation will be largely symbolic, I can't help but think that it'll be a famous, a stunning victory for ISIL or Daesh. And uh, I'd be happy to be told why I'm wrong. Well, I think you're right. <laughs> and I would say no is <laughs> a short answer to you. <laughs> I mean, that's in your spirit. <laughs> I mean, I'd echo, I think, I think you're, you're, you're right. I still are getting exactly what they want out of this. And yeah, so yes, yeah, I think you're completely right. Um, I think the thing with the... the I mean, I, I do think that it... I mean, it was a bit like you were saying earlier, Maeve, about you know, what kind of account could you give to someone that you were about to inflict violence on? So if you can get a debate between, you know, sufficient parties, uh, you know, then I think you can start to at least unpack these, you know, these assumptions and these everyday common sense sort of turning to violence to resolve problems. I'm not saying it's any kind of easy solution, but I think it's quite interesting to think about dialogue and interaction as a way of countering uh, the prevalence of, of, of turning to violence as a resource. But you were also asking a question about, uh, I thought you were, the reason I only said no there because of the question of economics. So I thought you were asking about a certain kind of argument for, for, for violence or for war in terms of e economies. Yeah. About the two cultures, yeah. In this practical case, like, there are two far away cultures. It's well, you see, like I don't, I don't, I, 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 that's a different kind of, so I misunderstood, but then I would say, I would say this, I think there's always possibility of engagement between cultures. I don't think, uh, yeah. uh, and there has to be, I think this is absolutely imperative, and, uh, and I think it's, it's really important for philosophers and political philosophers and, and political scientists uh, to, um, to, show, to, to make that point and to show how, how it's possible, how we, you know, we, and we learn from each other all the time and we have to learn from each other all the time. And I think precisely, I mean, one of the reasons I began to think about just, I know, I know we have to be nearly finished, but one of the reasons I began to think more about political authority is because uh, somebody who was working, somebody who was coming from a very different culture, trying to develop a radical democratic theory of Islam, uh, said to me that in one of my, you know, one of my published writings, I had insufficiently distinguished between authority and authoritarianism. So, you know, I, I, I thought, may I call it, but I haven't. You know, I have sort of, you know, I grew up at a time where all authority was bad, but authority can be good. And he was, of course, thinking of the authority of the holy text, and this is important in a political context. And I thought he's absolutely right. You know, there are good forms of authority too. So there can be not, you know, Within Islam, there can be there are very many ways of approaching the authority uh, of tradition, and that's the way you know that's an example of how I I certainly think we have a lot to learn from from yeah. other cultures. Yeah. I think we can just squeeze on one very quick question, gentleman in the middle. Sorry, I've picked the most inaccessible question, haven't I? <laughs> do please try and keep it very brief because we've only got a couple of minutes. I'll do my best. Um, because I'm really bad at it, I'm a graphic designer, I have nothing to do with social studies or whatsoever, but still I have some ideas on the political aspects. And um, it's 
it's a question more to the Mrs. Cook. Um, you were talking about the question, why should we live in political society? And by political society, as far as I understood, you meant the state. Um, and the reason that you stated, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, is to, in order, we have to have state in order to protect our individual freedom and rights within those freedoms and liberties. But the question will be like, um, how freedom can be protected by something that can become violent at basically any time. Because you, as Georgia... I think that, that sounds like a question. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Can I answer? Yeah, the only, I mean, this won't satisfy you, I'm sure. Uh, it's a really good question. And my quick answer to it is that the state or something like the state, so political association, regulated and governed in certain ways, it can, of course, and it does, and it usually has become violent at any time. But everything that I uh, want to say depends on us not having to be, not being essentially or intrinsically violent. So I think if we want to think about politics in any productive way, we have to assume that there is some form of politics that um, is not uh, essentially uh, violent. And I think there is. I think, I think there's, there's, other, there, it, there's a promise there that we can, and we can keep reminding uh, um, states that they are failing to fulfill their promise. Okay, I think that's a very optimistic note. <laughs> um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you all again for coming. It's wonderful to have a full house. Apologies to anybody who didn't get in right at the beginning. And I'd like you to, to ask you to join me in thanking our fantastic speakers.